A reading from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize for the upward call of Christ of God and Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they, their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. If you would join me as we pray one more time to hear from God's word. So dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth in the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come, Holy Spirit, come, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I was really excited to drive to our worship service today without sliding all over the road. If you recall, last week there was several inches of ice right here on this frontage road, and, and we, uh, we made our way through it, and uh, here we are again this week, and beyond even the excitement of the thaw, if you will, I'm excited for a new year. I'm excited to spend a new year with you. Some of you I've known for a season, some of you I just met even today. We're excited to do life with you, wherever you're at in your faith journey. Today's message is titled, Planning for Greatness. And throughout the fall, we went through the book of Philippians. And I just couldn't um, start a new series without first ending that series or ending our look at the book of Philippians. Um, so this week and next week, we're going to look at the book of Philippians, and then from there, we're diving into the Gospel of Luke. Our church, we have a pattern of not preaching topically, if you will, but we jump into books of the Bible, and we just unpack those stories and how those stories invite us into the grand story and how they touch and change our lives. So I'm excited to look at these words as Paul closes out not just his letter to the Philippians, but really closes out his life. 
As we look at his life and as we look at this year, how do we plan for greatness? Let's start with a question. Have you ever set out on a journey only to discover you're ill-prepared to reach the end? Have you ever started a journey only to discover you're going to struggle or you're ill-prepared to reach the end? Some of you know my story and know my marital story. Carly and I have been married for 19 years. And we thought, or shall I say, I thought it was a great idea for our honeymoon to just camp around the United States. We were young whippersnappers. I was 20. She was 22 when we got married. And we both took bags about uh, one foot by one foot by one foot for the whole summer. We got married in June, and we got a van. We took out the seats, put in a bed, kind of went hippie mode on, uh, if you will. And, and we started uh, in Florida and went all around the country. And at one point, we ended up in this beautiful place called the Grand Canyon. Who here has been to the Grand Canyon before? Raise your hand. Great. We not only showed up at the Grand Canyon and we marveled at the beauty of the Grand Canyon, but we felt called, gripped, to actually hike down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So let's see a show of hands. Who here has hiked down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Oh my gosh. Okay, one. Okay, we've got a witness. Okay, good. Well, you know, I was 20, Carly was 22. We thought we were in peak physical shape, right? And we had been married like just over a month, so we thought we had it all figured out. And, and so we, we saw the pictures. Here's some pictures of the Grand Canyon. It's just absolutely spectacular. And we, we just felt called to hike down. And, um, and we thought, well, even in the middle of summer, there's this gorgeous river down in the, the base of the Grand Canyon. Anyone know the name of the river? Colorado River. And there's little, you know, uh, swimming holes and, and fountains or, um, and, or things such as that. And so we thought we'd cool off in the middle of the hot summer day and then hike back up. And... Um, we, we knew we were a little over our heads when right as we began the journey, we saw signs all over the place <laughs> like this. And it's a warning sign. And those who've been have seen these signs. I'm just going to read what this says. It says, do not, in all caps, do not attempt to hike from the canyon rim to the river and back in one day. Each year, hikers suffer serious illness or death from exhaustion. And there's a picture of a gentleman who is either confused or about to die from a heat stroke. He's got his palm in his head thinking, why did I do this? And he somewhat looks like he's limping, like he's throwing out his quad. And you know what Carly and I did? We ignored the signs. And it, I thought we were well prepared. You know why? Because we had three peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We had three PB&Js and we had a lot of water. And I thought, well, as long as we stay hydrated, we can go down and back. And, and so we set out on this one trail that was 9.3 miles long, down and back. And we started in the cool, crisp air of the morning. And we didn't just start. We started by running. True story. We started by skipping down the trail. We're like, this is incredible. We've made it. Right? And so PB&Js, um, the water, and we get down. It took us three to four hours to get down, and we swam, and we thought, we, this is spectacular. 
And then we turned around to go back up. Since then, I've researched some of the preparation that's necessary to go down and back up. Do you know it takes typically twice as long to get back up as it does to get down? So if it took us like three to four hours to get down to the bottom of the canyon, the Grand Canyon, it took us like six, seven, eight hours to get up. And as you might imagine, uh, we had eaten the peanut butter and jellies during our romantic lunch down by the Colorado River. About halfway up, we had nothing left. And after our, our 500th switchback, some of you have seen pictures of the trails, they switch back and forth. I don't know why they do that, but nonetheless, you turn a corner and you're like, this is, this is crazy. About halfway through, we're dying. I'm literally on my hands and knees about to pass out with a migraine. I had two people in the earlier service confess that they too did the same exact thing and almost died. Like they, it was just crazy how hard it was. And then out of nowhere with like a quarter uh, of the trail left, this old guy comes down with a fanny pack and he's like, hey, good to see you. And then he hikes down and he hikes back up past us and he shredded his calves or knots. And you're like, oh my gosh. And then, so we're crawling and, um, and then believe it or not, like several minutes later, he does it again. It's like part of his routine. And, uh, and I, I, I'm at the end of my wits. I'm at the end of my physical you know, capacity to hike. And I hear not only um, the, the beating of my heart and the plea of my prayers, but then I hear from behind me these words. Just leave me. <laughs> Save yourself. And that was my wife, Carly, in a True story. And of course I left her. No, I didn't leave her. <laughs> and by God's grace, we made it back. It was nuts. But it's one of those moments, one of those times we set out on a journey ill-prepared to reach the end. As Paul is writing to the Philippians and that not only applies to them, that applies to us really in his dying breaths. As he's writing his last words, you know, to his friends, this first church plant in Europe, if, if you recall that. He loved this church. What did he have to say? I think he said something along these lines. Church, if we hope to live a great life, we must prepare with an eye toward the end. Let me contextualize it. For 2018, if you hope to live a great year, you must prepare with an eye toward the end. Specifically, Paul says three things are necessary. And we're going to unpack these here over the next few minutes. Number one, if we hope to live a great life, we must see grace as our base. Number two, if we hope to live a great life, we must see life as a race. And number three, if we hope to live a great life, we must trust others to illumine or light our way. So we're going to unpack these three points. 
Point number one, if we hope to live a great life, we must see grace as our base. We read these words earlier. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, Paul writes, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You know what's so compelling about these words? Just earlier in chapter three, Paul had listed all of his accolades. He had listed all of his accomplishments. And if you recall, in the fall, he goes on to say, you know what? All that stuff is nothing. It's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And he's near the end of his life. And he's essentially, let me translate this. Friends, I haven't yet arrived. I've done all these things. I've touched all these lives. But I'm still a work in progress. And you are too. And this is great news for us if we're honest, right? Whether you're brand new to this faith journey or whether you've been on this path for years, for decades. As Paul finishes his life and he writes to the Philippians and we receive this letter... He's filled with humility, with hunger, and the foundation of which is security in Jesus Christ. Grace is his base. It's interesting, in our staff meeting last, last week, one of the like, traditions or habits, I should say, of our staff is to do what's called a SWOT analysis of our organization. What are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunity, and threats to living into our mission, both in our unique leadership portfolios and then as a church as a whole. One of the best comments that came out of that meeting is Jerry McSwain, Pastor Jerry. He said to me, Paul, I'm still learning and I look forward to growing with you this year. How awesome is that? Jerry's been married close to 50 years and he's still saying, I'm still learning. I haven't figured it out. I'm still hungry to follow Jesus. Earlier in chapter three, Paul wrote these words, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's nothing that compares, he says. There's, I wanna be found in him, he later writes. Nothing compares, no affirmation, no affluence, no accolades, compares to that one thing of knowing Jesus. And so when he writes, basically make grace the base, he's saying, I haven't figured it out. You haven't figured it out, but that's all right. Christ has figured it out and he's called you and he's claimed you as his own. So let me just be clear about this. The motivation for our lives is not built around guilt or shame or fear. It's built on God's love for us through Jesus. And Paul is saying, no matter what, press into that. In fact, that language of press in, in the Greek, it's a military term. It means to seize. It's like an army charging ahead, looking for victory. No matter the cost, I'm going to claim that victory. I'm not going to slow down as my life goes on. I'm going to speed up pursuing what Paul would call perfection, which is the connection he has in Jesus. Connection with Jesus is our greatest good. Excuse me. So as we look ahead 
in 2018, I want to ask this question. What will be your motivation this year? Let me ask it in modern terminology. What will you consider a win to be in 2018 in your life? How will you define success in your life this year? Paul is saying the number one thing, the main thing that we together need to grow in is our knowledge, is our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we do that, that equals success. That equals a win. And all of us are called into that humility and our hunger and honestly, as a base of security, knowing we're not doing this to prove anything, we're pursuing this relationship much like you would in a marriage or any deep friendship where you want to grow it and sustain it and see it flourish. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we read in the Gospels. And Paul is saying, let grace be your base if you want to live a great life. Point number two. If we hope to live a great life, we must see life as a race. But one thing I do, he writes, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what Paul has in mind here is an Olympic racer. And I know we have some runners in the room. If you're a runner, raise your hand. Okay, there's a few of you. If you're not a runner, raise your hand. We all can't be like you, Sarah. Come on. Listen, what Paul has in mind here is a sports analogy. It's an Olympic analogy. He, and it's threefold in its tenses. He says, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward for what lies ahead, I press into this moment to grow, to grasp this relationship I and we have in Jesus Christ. Are you hungry for more, he's saying. Press into that hunger. Press into that hunger. And the view here is of an Olympic racer with a singular mindset, a singular focus and intensity. I came across a story this week. It's known as the Miracle Mile, and it was recalled by Kent Hughes in one of his books. And he recalls this about that day in 1954. On August 7th, 1954, during the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, the greatest mile run matchup ever took place. It was touted as the Miracle Mile because Britisher Roger Bannister and Australian John Landy were the only two sub four minute milers in the world. Bannister had been the first man ever to run a four minute mile. Both runners were in peak condition. I remember as a junior high boy carefully turning the pages, examining the photos of the famous, famous runners in Life magazine, and absorbing the stats and predictions. Roger Bannister, MD, who became Sir Roger Bannister and master of an Oxford college, strategized that he would relax during the third lap and save everything for his finishing drive. But as they began that third lap, the Australian poured it on, stretching his already substantial lead. Immediately, Bannister adjusted his strategy, increasing his pace and gaining on Landy. The lead was quickly cut in half, and at the bell for the final lap, they were even. Landy began running even faster. 
and Bannister followed suit. Both men were flying. Bannister felt, um, excuse me, Bannister felt he was going to lose if Landy did not slow down. And then came the famous moment, replayed thousands of thousands and thousands of times um, in print and flickering black and white. As at the last stride before the home stretch, the crowds roared. Landy could not hear Bannister's footfall and looked back. A fatal lapse of concentration. Bannister launched his attack and won the Empire Games that day by five yards. John Landy's lapse was as old as antiquity. The sports-knowledgeable Apostle Paul would have seen Landy's mistake in a flash because he knew that to be successful, a runner must not look back over his shoulder. He must forget what lies behind. Because when a runner turns even slightly to glance back, there's a momentary loss of focus and of rhythm, incurring the critical loss of a fraction of a second or even seconds. Paul is saying, I forget what's behind. I press forward to what's ahead, and I live into the moment now. The picture, uh, as he's saying, to win the prize, the idea is there's a finish line. And the question he's basically asking the Philippians, and we're being asked through this text, is do you, Chad, do you, Cody, do you, Didi, do you want to finish well? Press in to the race. Give your best first, starting now. Prepare to reach the end. Grow, fan the flame that's been put in you with this love of Jesus Christ. Grow in this relationship. Make it the one thing. We read, but one thing I do. The one thing above all things. Forget what, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice it's grace also leading the way. It's not just the foundation, it's the motivation. The call is from God. Come forward, Angie. Come forward, Sean. You're called to be more. So as we look to 2018, let me ask this question. What do you need to forget or release from your past? Some of you, you're tortured by your past. Maybe it's a, a broken relationship, a toxic relationship. Maybe it's something you yourself have done, a mistake you've made. And it just nips at you and it claims you and you can't look forward because you're always looking back. It's created an identity for you that you can't escape. You might even, in some twisted way, just let it define you. Something back there is holding you back from getting back over here, from excelling, becoming the man or woman God has created you to be. Paul is saying, forget what's behind. Look towards what ahead, what's ahead through the motivation of God's love for you. Let his Love for you define everything. Let it motivate everything in your life. Let it be the main thing. Will you let that be true in your life in 2018? If we hope to live a great life, we must see life as a race. 
Point number three, if we hope to live a great life, we must trust others to illumine or light our way. Paul, near the end, writes these words, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's a key word here from the Old Testament that he just puts right in the heart of this passage. And it's the word walk. The point is we're not meant to quote unquote walk alone in our faith journeys. According to Walter, Walter Hansen, in the Old Testament, the term walk is, frequently, uh, is used frequently to depict a personal relationship with God in obedience to the commands of God. The heroes of faith walked with God. Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he did what? He walked with God, Genesis 6. God commanded Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. The people of Israel receive promised blessings if they keep the commands of the Lord and what? Walk in his ways. The prophet Isaiah commands the one who walks righteously and speaks what is right. And the psalmist prays, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Psalm 86. Friends, we're not meant to walk alone in this gospel journey. We're not meant to run alone in this journey. We're meant to walk together. What Paul is saying, he's not being arrogant here by saying, hey, imitate me. I got it all figured out. Clearly, he's not saying that because he's saying, I don't have it figured out. I'm a work in progress, as, as are, are we all. But he's saying, I don't claim perfection, but I do claim direction. Walk with me. So the last question is this. As we enter into 2018, with whom will you walk in your faith journey this year? Are you going to walk alone? I think the beauty of our church and what I see happening is what's happening in our community groups. We're not meant to walk alone. We've created these different avenues so that you can have a people to walk with and to follow and have others follow you. We're all works in progress. At least that's what we claim here, according to scripture at the DI Fellowship. In the big book of AA, it says, we claim progress, we don't claim perfection. And that's the truth of the gospel. So who are you going to walk with this year? Another thing I love about our church is that we're a multi-generational church. As a newer church, that's unheard of. Our staff, we've got people that weren't even born when I graduated high school. And then we've got people that have been married over 50 years. The McSwains and the Amendolias combined have been married over 100 years, I believe. The Merrimans came up to me after the first service and they said, we've been married 51 years. Do you know those couples are for you? They're here. They don't have it all figured out. In fact, Jim's a little crazy. He's as hungry as anyone in the room. I have to slow him down at times. But there's people that are older that are going before you saying, let's walk together. And there's people that are very young and the cool thing is, those young people, they're going to be raised up in this multi-generational family of faith, walking together. What a beautiful thing. So point number three, if we hope to live a great life, we must trust 
or trust in others to walk with us along the way. So in summary, if we hope to live a great life, we must prepare with an eye toward the end. Paul says three things are necessary. Number one, we must see grace as our base. Let the love of Jesus invade our hearts and our lives and grow that relationship. Number two, we must see life as a race. I don't want God just to touch you in the moment. Paul doesn't want that in his writing. He not only wants God to touch you in the moment, he wants God to touch you along the path, along the journey over and over again. He wants you to run a great race, Cody. And number three, we're committed to helping you guys and helping one another run this race as we illumine the way for one another. To close, I offer this quote from C.S. Lewis. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And that's good news. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for new beginnings. And I thank you that we have the Apostle Paul and we have others that go before us and call us into humility and hunger based around the safety we have in you. God, I pray on behalf of our church that grace would be the base in all of the lives here. We're works in progress, but you love us. God, I pray that we just wouldn't be complacent, but we would charge ahead looking to grow in our relationship with you and one another through this good news, that we would run a good race with the end in mind. And God, lastly, I pray that we would invite others into our hearts and into our lives. You would raise up leaders, even young leaders, to lead the way. That we would walk in, with one another in this good news. We wouldn't walk alone. We pray all this in the matchless name of the King, Jesus Christ. Amen.